What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. It's right around this time of year that we are able to tune in a focus on gratitude. This does not mean that we aren't grateful all year round, but for this season, giving thanks gets to be our special focus. Over the years, I have many things to be grateful for, my job, my family, my faith. But one thing I am always grateful for is children's books. I love stories, and I found that some of the most poignant and powerful stories are told for children. So I'm grateful for children's books. But I've also found that children's books love to talk about gratitude, too. Beginning with a classic work by Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree, we find a powerful parable about giving and how to show love and gratitude in return. Another contemporary work that captures the same theme as The Giving Tree, as it shows us the beauty of the world around us and offers us the opportunity to be grateful for all that is here and everywhere, is All the World by Liz Scanyon and Marla Fraze. Todd Parr's bold and colorful book, The Thankful Book, also offers us a broad sense of gratitude when it tells us we can be thankful for things like feet because they help us run and play. There are also some wonderful children's books that offer us insight into gratitude for specific things. James Dougherty's 1938 Caldecott winning classic, Andy and the Lion, shows us that we can be grateful for others and the help they can give us. Another classic Caldecott winning book, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble by William Steig, shows us by having it taken away that we can be grateful for life and family. There is even beautiful poetry to celebrate the season of gratitude. Nikki Grimes' beautiful poems in Thanks a Million talk about what we are thankful for, but also how we can say thanks with a flower or a surprise. Another beautiful poem of thanks, Father, We Thank You, that is attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson is put into a beautifully illustrated edition by Mark Graham. This poem and the impressionistic illustrations perfectly capture the joy and gratitude for simple things. So in this season, where our thoughts turn to gratitude, I hope that you can find something to be grateful for and that you might just add to that list of thanks one of these books from Rachel's World that expresses its own sense of being grateful. Children often wonder what they want to be when they grow up. Actually, you may even be asking that question right now. Our guest today, popular illustrator-author Bob Shea, talks to Rachel about his journey to his present profession. It all started with drawing and writing in childhood and continued later with his work as a graphic designer. Ultimately, he discovered the world of illustrating and writing picture books. Bob Shea has written and illustrated over a dozen picture books, including the popular Dinosaur vs. Bedtime and the cult favorite Big Plans, illustrated by Lane Smith. Here's Rachel and Bob. We're talking with Bob today. Welcome to the show, Bob. 
Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you today about your process of making gorgeous, wonderful picture books. So let's start out with that question. What, how did you start doing this? How did you start being a creator of marvelous picture books? Well, I am actually, it's a, uh, it's a secret that I seem to tell everyone. Well, that's a good kind of secret. <laughs> it is. It's a secret that I can't seem to shut up about. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually a graphic designer. I went to uh, school for graphic design. And so I was doing corporate things like logos and newsletters and things. And then I went and got a job at uh, Comedy Central. And I was doing logos and uh, brochures for them, but funny ones. I, they let me. No one was paying attention, so they let me write them as well. And from there, I went to uh, a place and worked on. Uh, I went to an independent place and worked on PBS Kids, the P, like the PBS Kids logo and all the on-air stuff with a little boy and girl are running around and doing things. And that got me into kids stuff. So a few years went by where I was drawing ideas and started to draw more modern, just big giant shapes, sticking with the graphic design. And then I, uh, I wrote a kid's book, and um, I met uh, Lane Smith, and he was kind enough to uh, uh, introduce me to the uh, kid-lit world. And he actually, my second picture book, he uh, was nice enough to illustrate for me. So it was sort of a long road into starting, uh, again, in, in art school and design school, and then just sort of being like, hey, you know what? Drawing these things for kids is kind of fun. And so I started doing that. And you entered the most marvelous world on the planet and started creating amazing books, particularly one of my favorites are your books about Dinosaur, a wonderful right. character. So tell us a little bit about how Dinosaur came to be. What was, what was his inspiration? Uh, so when, I, when my son was super small and um, I, he was like, I guess he was like two, I would try to impress him, be like, I want to be an impressive dad. And I'd, I'd actually give myself challenges that were obviously easy. And I'd, I'd say to him, hey, bet you don't think I can eat all this pizza. And he was even too and be like, I've seen you eat more pizza than that, so I'm pretty confident you can eat that pizza. And I would eat it, and I'd be like, yeah. And I would have a little party for myself that no one else was took part in. So I thought... Um, I, he, since he was a toddler, it was very much like having a dinosaur in the house. And so I thought that uh, uh, all the challenges that he faced during the day, I thought it would be nice if they were celebrated. So that's where the idea for Dinosaur came, up, came along. It was actually, it was, that was one of the ideas that came to me pretty, pretty quickly and pretty, and pretty well formed. And it wasn't a lot of work. And then, you, and then you build the book and say, okay, now what does it look like? How is it treated visually? And what's the little character going to be like? So let's talk a little bit about that, how you treat it visually, because I think that's one of the things that I love about your work is that you treat things so dynamically with your visuals. It's very much about the power and impact of the visuals. So how do you decide to treat things visually in your books? That, that particular book, that's a, that's a good example, because every page I consciously went in where I said, I want every page to look like a poster. So when you, when you approach it that way, and I said that because I'm like, well, you know what? You're, you're not uh, trained as an illustrator. You, can, you really need to rely on the skills that you have for this thing, which is graphic design. So big, bold shapes, dyna dynamic typography, 
a lot of bold colors, all these things, and like big, strong, solid images. And it really fit with what I was doing with the dinosaur thing. Because I was like, well, it's like the whole book is like a boxing match where you're trying, he's fighting all these things and he's, uh, have, uh, takes on all these challenges. So that, I tried to match that style with what was happening in the book and it just worked really well in that case. I think it does. It really is amazing how you can see that kind of stayed visual of this is a poster. How do you, but how do you work with the text to make that balance? Do you, do you plan that out very concertedly or do you maybe draw the pictures first and then figure out where, where the text is going to be? Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination because if you look at dinosaur, the text is very much integrated into the imagery. So that was very, very conscious. Only in few examples, like when it, in the beginning when it says uh, dinosaur versus, I just left a space for that, knowing that it was going to be something super bold. And then I would put that in afterwards. But in the case like um, Unicorn, Unicorn thinks he's pretty great, that typography was treated differently. My wife actually worked on that with me, and you, we had a specific typography for goat, and we had a specific typography for unicorn. So the type really comes into to play a lot in all my books. I love that connection. But is this something that you always kind of wanted to do as a child? Did you always want to draw? Did you always want to be a graphic designer? Is that something that was intensely part of you even as a kid? I think that um, I didn't, I did, even going into graphic design school, I didn't know what being a graphic designer meant. I did always, I always drew from very young age, I was drawing and making up stories. At no time did I think that that was a possible, that people did that for a living. You know, I was like, that's just something fun that I like to do. And I did it all the time. High school, I took some art classes and was like, well, I want to, I, I really like art, but I'm good at math. <laughs> and, and so I was like, I'll be a businessman artist. And I was like, I'll go to graphic design school and I'll go to a businessman graphic design office and I'll wear a, you know, a tie and a button down white shirt and I'll have a jacket on the back of my door in case clients come. And I tried that for a few years and I was like, yeah, I just really want to joke around and draw pictures. Is oh, that humor something that you put in there for your fun or is it something that's just kind of a natural part of who you are and it just comes out that way? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just part of who I am. I have to sit with the book. You know, the same way parents have to read the same book over and over every night, I have to live with the book for a, quite a few months. So it's like if it's not entertaining to me, <laughs> it's going to be really difficult to get to, to muster up enthusiasm to, to work on it every day. I, uh, I, I'm very happy that there is the audience that there is for funny picture books because I would not be able to write a sincere one. You're, you're not <laughs> going to write a very thought-provoking, in-depth picture book. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just that does you know, I guess I could if I tried, but I mean, I wouldn't be happy about it. It, well, would, it would feel phony if I did it. I just would feel phony. Yeah. There are so many readers out there that are just in love with your books and find them to be just the most amazing books for their families. Do you interact a lot with your readers? And what, what does that interaction look like? I do. I do a lot of uh, school visits. I travel around the country during the school year and do, do a, a lot of visits. And that's so much fun. 
And uh, I get to read because I can joke around with the kids and they seem to like it. And they're like, they right away they're in. Like if you have to do a presentation to another group of people, to grown-ups, they're like, I got to be somewhere else and I got to sit through this thing and it better be good. And kids are like, I'm not in class. Some grown-up is here. He's going to do some stuff. Sure. I don't care. And then you start joking around with them. They're like, this is great. I love that. So it's nice. As you do interact with these kids, what has surprised you most about uh, about their reactions to your books? I I think that the thing that you learn when you, you go out and you actually meet the kids is how open to ideas that they are. They really – you really can uh, – tell them anything and they're along for the ride and they're open to whatever you want to say. You can tell them, you know, there's a monster in the woods and all these bunnies and they're like, okay, yeah, no problem. I get it. You know, they're not, they're not, they're just looking to, to have fun and they're not, they're not, you know, they're not jaded yet. (laughs) I think that's really true because they can open their minds to the complete world of the imagination and, and really believe that a dinosaur could be involved in all of the things that he is. Is that is that something you look to, to that wonderful sense of childhood wonder as you look for your ideas and create your books? I, you know, I, I, I think that I, I don't call it looking to childhood wonder as I call it getting over being an adult, you know, because I think that with kids, they're not like, isn't it how one, isn't it so wonderful how much I wonder? <laughs> they, they're just, it's such, so integrated into their lives. Like it's so much just a part of who they're, they are and they just take it for granted that I really have to, a lot of times if I'm writing, I'll say to myself, I can't do that. That's silly. And then I'm like, that's exactly why it should go in. That's a perfect tip to end on. Thank you so much, Bob. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you. Our next guest on Worlds Awaiting is Lynette Christensen, professor in the BYU School of Education. Her area of expertise is positive behavior support. The premise is that acknowledging good behavior fosters good behavior. Merely punishing misbehavior is never as effective. Christensen is Assistant Director of the BYU Positive Behavior Support Initiative and has been actively involved in the implementation and research of this program in the public schools. Here's Rachel and Lynette Christensen. I'm in studio with Lynette today. Welcome, Lynette. Thank you, Rachel. Lynette is a researcher here at Brigham Young University, and one of the things that you focus on is a concept called positive behavior support. Now, most people will probably understand what each of those words mean individually, but when you put them together, they may not understand that concept. So first off, Lynette, why don't you define for us what does that mean? What is positive behavior support? Sure. Well, it is exactly what it sounds like, using positive principles to support appropriate behaviors with the idea that if we'll teach behavior up front, we're lots less le- we're, we're lots more likely to eliminate inappropriate behavior because we've taught the appropriate behavior to begin with. And if we'll view misbehavior as an opportunity to teach, then we're building the skills that the kids need to succeed. So it's the idea of supporting positive behaviors. And when you support positive behavior and give a lot, you teach it and you give a lot of attention to it and shape it, 
you eliminate a lot of inappropriate behavior. It's kind of based on the principle of the word discipline, which is has a Latin derivative. It means to teach, and we don't necessarily think that. Behavior is more likely to, to be shaped into a good behavior if we'll just acknowledge good behavior, teach it, versus constantly punishing misbehavior. And there's a decades of research on that. So what kind of behavior are we talking about here? Are we talking about just, you know, minor infractions or are we talking about more? Wow, we're talking about the, the spectrum. We're talking about the spectrum. A lot of my professional work is done helping schools prevent misbehavior through setting up appropriate systems and things. But also, you know, one of the big challenges in schools, and families have these challenges too, is what do we do when somebody has some severe problems? So, you know, my professional work is in helping kids with emotional and behavioral problems. So more on the extreme end of the spectrum. But I love the work I do on the preventative end. It's kind of like this story I heard once where this woman was on the bank of a river and all these people started floating down the river who were drowning. She's so busy pulling them out, she never got upstream to see why they were falling in in the first place. You know, a lot of what this is about is preventive. Let's figure out why people are falling in in the first place and just handle as much of that, prevent as much as we can. But then let's let's help people understand how to appropriately intervene for those who have a, little, a more severe situation that's difficult to deal with. That's really a great thing that this kind of sense of positive behavior support can run the gamut between really, you know, kind of lesser infractions, I guess, or lesser behavior problems to the more severe problems. So maybe give us kind of an example of a behavior problem and then what what a parent or teacher might do in order to apply this kind of principle to changing yeah, that behavior. So there's some basic principles at play here. You know, and it, um, one of them is we're much more likely to be successful in our teaching if we have positive relationships. So we're working on our relationships. You know, people's, people are lots more able to and willing to take feedback from us if there's some kind of a good relationship. Which is true of all relationships. <clears throat> exactly. Parents, <laughs> friends. Yeah. yeah. And then there's this idea, too, that if we'll acknowledge appropriate behavior, so praise and encourage and acknowledge appropriate behavior as often as we can, we'll see it more often. Because what the, the rule kind of is what gets attention gets repeated, right? So here's a classic example. You're in the grocery store and your child wants a candy bar and you say no and they start having a tantrum about the candy bar. Common problem. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there probably or at least seen that if we haven't been there. But I think we've all probably been there. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you deal with that? It's embarrassing. Kids sometimes escalate to really – it's pretty – pretty big deal that they're pitching a fit. So what most often probably happens, people just give in and buy them the candy bar, right? But what the child just learned is when I really want something, if you say no to me, if I do this, you're probably going to give it to me. Well, that's not what we want kids to learn, right? So a preventative approach to this would be, okay, we're going to the grocery store today. And I'm here to buy groceries, so we're not buying any toys or candy bars this time. So what are we not buying? <laughs> toys and the candy bars, right? Now, if you decide you want one and I say no and you get upset, we're just going to walk away from the cart and we're just going to go get in the car and go home. I mean, it might be something like that. 
Or it might be, I'll remind you that we decided. But usually if you set it up before you go, or you might say, wow, if we have a great time in the store while I'm doing all this shopping and you've you haven't asked me for things because I've said we weren't, then we might have a treat as we go. However you want to set that up, but you set it up before time because you're trying to prevent the problem to begin with. So it's a, it's a little bit of thinking ahead and teaching ahead, right? We're going to the store just to buy groceries today. This isn't a day to buy treats or toys. That's another day. I love that sense because a lot of this, particularly the the behaviors that we're looking at with positive behavior support is functionally those kind of social behaviors as well as those emotional regulatory behaviors that are really hard for kids to learn and are so essential for kids to learn in order to grow up to be (laughs) well-functioning, you know, contributing adults in society. Yeah. And part of what I love about this is it models respect. I'm not yanking on your arm to pull you out of the store and yelling at you because you're embarrassing me because you're pitching a fit because that sometimes happens. I mean, none of us are perfect all the time. We sometimes snap, even though that's not something we have wanted to say or do. But it's just it's respectful of both sides. Me as the adult dealing with the situation and the child learning, what are the appropriate ways to deal with these kinds of things? So what if you hadn't set it up and the, you know, the, fit was there happening right then. Is there a way to apply some of these principles in that moment? Sure. So um, I could still say, put the candy bar down, we're going, you know, and we just walk out. Now, that takes a little bit of, you know, some people are a little nervous about just leaving their cart in the grocery store, but I'm pretty sure that's not the end of the world if you do that. I've never had to do it. Me either. <laughs> we'll try something. But it could be that you pull your child aside and you calmly say, you know, you're crying and you're upset and you need to stop. And and just calmly, I mean, and that sometimes it sounds pretty simple, but because what do kids expect us to do? Get in their face and kind of yell back and engage back. But if it's just this calm, look, I'm going to give you a minute to compose yourself because we're not buying the candy bar. So. Stop crying, and, and if you'll come around quickly, you know, maybe we can go do something fun or whatever. A lot of kids will kind of redirect to that, but a lot of kids will really push you on that. The danger in just giving in to giving them the candy bar, again, is you're sending them the message, this works. When I really want something, this is how I get it. You know, a lot of misbehavior is like that. Kids are trying to meet some kind of need. I mean, we people think they're manipulating or whatever. Really... Behavior is about meeting some kind of a need. And you you have to realize "Mm, there's some kind of need that needs to be met here. And I want to teach them the appropriate way to meet it the next time we come to this juncture. So I might have an ugly scene in the store. It might not work out so well over the candy bar. But I can have a teaching moment later when we're all in control again. And that's an important moment to have. I love that sense of... You know, we may not have dealt with it really appropriately in the moment, but then we need to look back on it. And also this sense of a tantrum in the grocery store is tough, but when we talk more kind of on the severe end of things, how do these yeah. principles help in those situations? Well, the same – really, the same principles interplay, right? It's just that the behavior is more severe. And, and we have to remember that we're the adult and we have to maintain some kind of – somebody has to maintain their head and their calmness in this situation. But lots of times, again, things can be prevented. If I'm clear in my expectations, 
That's another key principle of positive behavior support. Let's be clear in our expectations so that somebody really understands what we expect them to do. None of us like getting hit with something out of the blue. It's like, wait, that's not what you told me. You see how that escalates the situation with all of a sudden I do something you don't like and then you come back with some threat or consequence that we didn't talk about or whatever. And all of a sudden I'm blindsided by something that might make me even more upset. Right. So this idea of let's be clear about what we expect someone to do, which it was just kind of setting up the grocery store. Right. We're going to go in. We're going to shop for the food. We're not buying toys today. So I want you to stick with me and we're not, you know. Another day will be the day we divide. You make things clear to kids. It's like, and you don't, and you don't make those expectations. Don't. We don't teach math by teaching people how many ways do you not get four by adding numbers together, you know. But lots of times when we teach behavior, we don't do this, don't do that. We need to teach what you're what what you do do, not lay out the expectations of all these things you don't do. So like I said, we don't teach academic content by showing how you don't – all we do is show how you don't do it. I really like that concept, Lynette. I think that it's important this – just this rephrasing of it is from a don't to a do. So it it seems really simple. I mean these principles just (laughs) seem – they seem like, oh, yeah, this is really simple. But I I don't want to – Reduce oh, it to the simplicity. No, but, but that's part of the reason it gets discounted is some of it is like pretty simple. So if I – if you know, all of these principles are important and I haven't mentioned all of the components of positive behavior support. But I often say to people, if there were two things that you did super well that would prevent misbehavior and foster appropriate behavior even with difficult kids, that those two things would be build the foundation of a good, positive, trusting relationship. Because we'll do a lot of things for people that we trust and know care about us that we wouldn't do for someone else. And that's not the only reason we build a relationship is to get people to do what we want them to do. But when there's that bond of love between us, we behave differently as an adult as well because we think, wait, I want to, I want this relationship to remain positive. So I need to think about how am I going to say that? Um, the other part of that would be the idea of of praise and encouragement. None of us are dying from a lack of being overly praised for the things that we do. We don't get enough of that kind of feedback. And it's powerful. If you can be too consistent with those two things, game changers. And they sound pretty simple, but but they're powerful game changers. And that's a perfect note to end on. Just two simple yet powerful things we can do to help change our lives and impact the children that we associate with. Thank you so much, Lynette. Thanks, Rachel. Lynette Christensen, Assistant Director of the BYU Positive Behavior Support Initiative, talking about how supporting positive behaviors will help curb misbehavior in children. We finish up the show today with a book review by Lauren Tolman, children's librarian at the Springville, Utah Library. Tolman introduces a picture book called Pink is for Blobfish, Discovering the World's Perfectly Pink Animals by Jess Keating from the World of Weird Animals series. Pink is for Blobfish, written by Jess Keating and illustrated by David DeGran. I was really drawn to this one simply from the cover. There is a pink, mucus-looking blobfish. He looks like he has eyes, it looks like he has a big nose, something gross hanging out of his mouth. I think kids are going to love this one. 
Um, he was recently named the ugliest animal in the world, officially. So it's kind of the perfect book to learn about this strange creature. I relate to him in that he is not so much of a predator. He waits for his food to come to him, and then he just opens his mouth and eats. This book has detailed photographs and illustrations with um, really interesting facts. It talks about the diet, the habitat, and the predators of 17 other really bizarre creatures around the world. They include the hairy squat lobster and the pink toe tarantula. This is a great nonfiction read for curious kids. It kind of fits in that um, right in between, I would say, second and third grade. Not quite old enough for some of the heavier nonfiction, but um, certainly out of the picture book age range. That was Laura Tolman, children's librarian at the Springville Library, reviewing the picture book, Pink is for Blobfish, Discovering the World's Perfectly Pink Animals by Jess Keating. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews from other librarians in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.